Today's scripture is taken from the Acts of the Apostle. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. Thanks be to God. In the summer of 2011, I had the opportunity to travel to Indonesia. I went with a group of students and professors from my seminary for a big conference that the Indonesian Methodists were hosting, and almost every Methodist pastor across the many Indonesian islands was there. As students, our job was primarily to listen and learn. And I learned a lot from these faithful pastors serving in vastly different contexts than anything I had experienced. These are ministers who have had to work around very restrictive Indonesian laws that have prevented them from even having actual church buildings. They've also faced death threats from marrying people from families of other religions or converting people to Christianity. It was a completely different reality compared to the practice of faith I was used to here in Texas. And while I was trying to soak all that in and learn whatever I could from it, us seminary students also had to help with the translation equipment for the event. Many of the pastors there did not speak English, and our presenters spoke a variety of different languages and dialects. In our big group sessions, we had translation devices which were essentially radio transmitters where the listener could put in headphones and tune into a channel where their native language was coming through. So there would also be booths across the back of the room with people doing live translations that were sent out to those devices of the participants. Several years later, I actually experienced a very similar setup when I traveled to the Philippines with some Methodist youth and young adults from all over the world for a different kind of worldwide gathering. In both places, I myself used that translation equipment when a non-English speaker was presenting. And like all technology, it was brilliantly frustrating. I recognize the amazing near miracle such devices make possible, hearing a live translation of a presentation so that people from around the world can gather and work together. But there were also a few problems, of course. Sometimes the headphones wouldn't work, or it was very difficult to find the right channel for the language you needed. Sometimes the problems were humorous, like when a translator would forget what language to use, and suddenly, instead of English, I was hearing a bunch of French that I really didn't know how to follow. Sometimes the problems with the translation amplified other issues going on as we gathered, like when certain decisions were being made or things were being voted on in the Philippines and the translation was slow or the translator missed something important and confusion and misunderstanding took hold. When it all worked perfectly, which was never, 
this translation equipment would have presented a, a false view of how harmonious everything was. As it turned out, in reality, with all the hiccups and frustrations and trying to understand one another, we saw a more accurate picture of the truth. As we came together, worlds were clashing in both of those events, in the Philippines and in Indonesia, and we were all left disoriented. I believe the day of Pentecost, recorded in the book of Acts, was pretty similar for those disciples of Jesus. They had come together in a room to observe a traditional Jewish holiday, a kind of harvest festival during which they would offer some goodwill sacrifices. It wasn't anything super fancy, more a normal reminder of God's gifts and the holiness of the Sabbath. They, those disciples would have arrived with expectations, a general sense of how everything would go. They would be oriented to their world in a very typical kind of way. But this time, when they gathered, the Spirit of God moved among them in a powerful and disorienting way. As we just heard, there was first a sound like the rush of a violent wind, which filled the entire house. A violent wind, indoors. Alone, that would be pretty freaky. Then, divided tongues of fire rested upon each of them. Not your typical 50th day after Passover, am I right? This is where things go from eerie to what in the world is going on? As if that were not startling enough, the people begin speaking in different languages in a way that the people around them from different parts of the world could understand in their own native language. We are told that the crowd gathered was bewildered which I can only imagine as putting it lightly. The fact that nobody ran out of the room shrieking is a miracle. And there are a few other details which emphasize just how unusual the scene was. The Bible spends a couple of verses describing all those different regions and languages represented. I left that part out to prevent any disgruntled scripture readers trying to stumble through like I would the names Phrygia and Pamphylia and all these different places that we don't talk about too much. But this list of regions is important to show how diverse the group gathered was. This is people from as far west as modern-day Iran and Pakistan to as far east as Rome and everywhere in between, which is very expansive for this time in history. All these people would have traveled in for this celebration and then been very surprised when they heard this ragtag group of Galileans speaking in a way they could understand. So surprised that some others nearby claimed they were just filled with new wine. Lest we think those internet trolls, the people who just wander around online and comment maliciously on things they know nothing about, lest we think those trolls are something new, we have evidence here that they are not. <laughs> There have always been the sneerers and jeerers around us. God help us not become that way. And I don't know about you, but I always envision this scene with interest rather than bewilderment. We are far enough removed from the story that we can think, wow, that's a really cool thing going on there. Or I wonder what it would be like to hear someone speaking in another language but be able to understand it in my own. 
And then, as I try really hard to put myself in that scene, to try to figure out what it would have really been like for those disciples, I can think of only confusion and a bit of terror. This is a wildly disorienting event. I think I see the disorientation here more clearly now because violent wind, tongues of fire, strange communication, all pales in comparison to the intensity of the disorientation we're going through now as a society. Even my experiences in Indonesia and the Philippines, hearing confused French or frustrated Russian, does not compare to the disorientation we are all living with now. As we stumble through these big questions of how do we even identify truth? How do we respond to mass shootings? How can we at least act like we're trying to keep up with technology and AI? How can we navigate a changing natural environment? The way we once were oriented to our lives and our world, even in my short time on this earth, simply doesn't work anymore. Things are different and changing more and more rapidly every year. Just this week, I was talking to someone who tried to claim that immigrants coming into this country are bringing all kinds of unknown diseases and are only causing problems as they seek safety in homes. Now, I know these views are spewed by bad news sources and that it's an extremist position, but it's still a view, an example of this terrible misunderstanding being shared in our country which grows out of not knowing how to navigate the change, the disorientation that brings. Those immigrants are humans, just like you and me. They are not diseased others. They are children of God. They have different languages and customs, and they are our neighbors, whom we are called to love unequivocally. I think we all believe that to some degree. Even the person I was talking with, but when we try to act like things haven't changed or when we try to hold on to the good old days, it becomes that much harder to reorient to how we can be loving in this new world. So I believe that a reorientation is the ultimate goal. And I'll get to that soon. But to get there, we must move past our orientation and through disorientation so that we can really listen to the humanity of the people around us and be good news to them in new ways. When we refuse to acknowledge the disorientation, we can get stuck. If the disciples and crowds on that Pentecost day had not navigated their disorientation well, I think they would still be arguing over how drunk those people were, rather than seeing the new and exciting ways God was reorienting them to share good news I've intentionally used this language of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation as a framework for understanding the Pentecost story in our own lives. And I want to explain exactly what I mean by that. This framework comes from the writer and theologian Walter Brueggemann in his book, Praying the Psalms. And there he recognizes these three major movements in human life and how they are captured beautifully in the book of Psalms. First is a place of orientation, in which everything makes sense in our lives. Most of us crave to be there, because it's comfortable, reliable, and predictable. This is the life we remember, or imagine existing, 
before the shooting here in Allen, or before COVID, before you got laid off, or before she died. In the Bible, it's the time before the slaves leave Egypt, where at least they knew what to expect. It's the time before the exile when the people of God had a kingdom and some sense of safety. It's the time before the crucifixion when Jesus taught and healed and broke bread. It's the time before Pentecost where even though Jesus wasn't there, some rhythm of life had emerged for the disciples to make sense of things. If we're really honest, even the time of orientation was probably not as peaceful as we remember it being. But some of us are romantics and some of us have bad memories, so we tend to think there was some actual order before. But in comparison to the next stage, there at least was some sense of normal. Because second is that place of disorientation, in which we feel as if the world has fallen out from under us. Nothing makes sense. There's no way out of the deep hole into which we have sunk. Life or the world around us has changed in some way. We have experienced loss or death a change in our circumstances, either health or finances, which means everything feels unsettling and scary and unpredictable. This is the biblical time of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness or of being taken over by foreign powers and driven far away from home in the exile. It's the time of death on a cross and some really weird stuff happening unexpectedly in a room on Pentecost. And then finally, there is reorientation, in which we realize the world is still under our feet, though it looks completely different. We have a new sense of gratitude and awareness about our lives and our God. It's the place of a new normal. It's the promised land. It's Daniel making a life away from home in Babylon. It has resurrected Jesus walking into a room to comfort his followers or eating fish on the beach. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that leads us to be good news for a weary world. So, one question that seems to be a pretty important one is how do we get to that reorientation? It's a good question and one I will address, but it's not the only one. Because the journey to reorientation always involves that span of disorientation. And we always have to ask, especially since I believe that is the place that most defines where we are right now, how do we faithfully navigate disorientation? Right after those wild events on Pentecost Day, Peter, the disciple, gets up and tries to guide the crowd. In his speech, he begins by sort of quoting the prophet Joel. He gets it mostly right. He says that when the Spirit comes, it means people will see visions and have dreams and prophesy. But then he also includes the disorienting part of Joel's words. He says the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Peter then goes on to talk about the glorification of the risen Jesus but not before he reiterates the horrid crucifixion. Peter makes the crowd acknowledge the disorientation. 
because they cannot be reoriented until they do. And because, as Peter points out, God is just as present in those times of disruption. And maybe there are some important things we need to do all along the way. Acknowledging and sitting with disorientation is hard. It seems wrong. Sometimes it feels like failure. But as Peter shows the crowds and us, it's, it's not, because it is the truth. The disciples were disoriented by the weird stuff the Spirit was doing, and only through that were they able to reorient toward a world to do things like care for the poor in effective ways. We see the reorientation later in the story, in verses 43 to 47, spoiler alert, where we are told that this Jesus-following community held their money and goods in common so that they could care for the poor better. They broke bread together and worshipped. These people had been around Jesus. They knew they should care for the poor. They had seen Jesus doing all these things. But it was only through disorientation of the cross and of the Holy Spirit and the full recognition of what it all meant that they began caring for the poor in a reoriented relationship with them. Likewise, we knew we should care about gun violence. But it was only through disorientation and really allowing ourselves to be knocked off our feet, of actually admitting to ourselves there's something wrong, that America has a gun problem, that we can do something about it in a reoriented relationship with ourselves and our world, and especially those people crying out in pain who have been directly impacted. Now, I know this is a tough state to be in. It's a tough state to talk about. So i also turn to the wise words of David Bowie, who once said, ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, turn and face the strange, ch-ch-changes, there's going to have to be a different man. And then later in the song, I love these words, he says, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, turn and face the strange. Ch-ch-changes, don't tell them to grow up and out of it. Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, you get the point. I believe fruitful reorientation only comes after we honestly acknowledge where we are. So we turn and face the strange. Because in the disorientation, we can and must be angry enough to move into a different way of thinking and being. In that space, our hearts are broken. Broken in the same way that God's heart is. And broken hearts are often softer hearts. In disorientation, we can really hear the cries of those in need, who are the ones we must then focus on in reorientation. And in fully facing the hard reality, we will know firsthand that God is present in those tough spaces and feelings. The Apostle Peter seeks to prove this point in his speech on Pentecost Day. Though he doesn't say the word, I hear him preaching about trust. And not trust that things will work out, or trust that we will finally find God when we make it through the trouble, but rather trust that God is right there with us through the whole journey. Trust that God is in the disorientation if God is anywhere at all. It's the hardest place to offer trust. 
It's the kind of trust of the Marys going back to the tomb Jesus was in when all hope seemed lost. But it is that trust which leads to renewal and resurrection. Now we can ask, how do we get to reorientation? Here I return to the scoffers from that Pentecost day in the Bible, the sneerers, you remember, the ones who said the disciples are just filled with new wine, because I think this claim might have a lot more truth to it than they may have realized. Maybe God's spirit that came upon these disciples was a kind of new wine. I'm reminded here of a parable Jesus told. It's recorded in three of the Gospels. It's a little cryptic and pretty short, but maybe it applies here. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Maybe God's spirit being poured out here is a kind of new wine, a new way of understanding our world and our neighbors. God is certainly doing the work of renewal and bringing unity to these people on Pentecost across different languages in a way that does not reinforce difference, but rather brings greater understanding. So to be open to the Holy Spirit means being a new wineskin that can receive that new wine without bursting. And to me, that means entering the renewal of God's mercy by repenting of the inequalities and injustices we continue to perpetuate, and then accepting God's forgiveness so that we can inhabit a new way of being. It means paying attention to what all God is doing new in our world as the Spirit constantly moves among us. It means praying with our eyes open in any situation we find ourselves in. Or in other words, looking for how God is present and seeking to join in that work. And then it involves putting ourselves in the right situations, going into places of difference where the Holy Spirit is desperately needed, where we have to depend on God. It means getting face-to-face with the poor or harassed women or people from different cultures and different languages It means stepping into disoriented spaces with a trust that the Spirit of God will meet us there because the Spirit of God has gone before us. And it means actually listening to the cries of those in distress, those who are crying out from the depths of their souls that, yes, racism is still very present. Yes, guns are a problem. Listening to these cries means not justifying our actions or defending our positions, but caring for those impacted and keeping our hearts soft toward them. We can trust that our God goes before us and with us into this new space, providing a peace and strength that goes beyond words. It's the kind of divine presence I experienced in those moments of reorientation in the Philippines and in Indonesia. In both places, there were several times that we took off the translation devices and allowed ourselves to be present with one another. These were times of sharing personal stories in smaller groups with more organic translation, where we were able to hear each other and our deep concerns and needs. Once we were connected on that level, the Spirit joined us together in passionate prayer, some really delicious food, including communion, even a Congo line that emerged in a moment of fun dancing at dinner one night. 
It is possible to become new wineskins for the new wine God is pouring into our world. And as we sit in disorientation right now, particularly around gun violence, I trust that the Holy Spirit is gripping our hearts and guiding us into a new way of being in our world. I certainly hope and look forward to those new paths. Would you pray with me? God, we trust your presence in the disorientation. Help us face it faithfully. And may the Holy Spirit fill us with the new wine of your work among us so that we find a reorientation that allows us to share that new wine fully in our world. Amen.